I would rather give somebody the power to speak naked than to have them picture their audience naked. I'm not asking you to bare your soul. What I'm asking is for you to get really gritty and honest with your audience. When you're speaking to them, speak plainly, speak truthfully. Don't gloss it over. Tell a compelling story, but be honest with it. Don't don't edit it for our sake because that doesn't serve anybody. Welcome to Neurons to Nirvana, a platform for creative forces that embrace the unconventional and the quest for artistry, humanity, innovation, health, and healing of the mind and soul. Join me, Tom Hartridge, on a journey celebrating experiences unbound by physical borders or traditional norms. From inside the mind to the far reaches of the universe, this is Neurons to Nirvana. Today's guest is Tyler Foley. Tyler is an accomplished film and stage performer and has been acting in film and television since he was six years old. He is an author of the best-selling book, The Power to Speak Naked. Tyler is a father, husband, son, and performer and spent some time with me on Neurons to Nirvana to talk about his passion in promoting and encouraging people to be heard and understood and for them to know that their story actually matters. Tyler, hey, thanks for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Tom. I'm I'm looking forward to this conversation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you're out of uh, Calgary, right? That's right. Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Um, how's, the, how's the weather up there? Freezing? Uh, ironically enough, no. Where I am in the country, we're re- nestled right next to the Rocky Mountains. So I'm just east of the Rocky Mountains. A lot of people know my area for Banff, which is both a national park and a, and a township. Lots of really good skiing, hiking, nature uh, that's out there. It's super windy today, but it's above freezing. (laughs) So to be above freezing in Canada in, you know, the middle of winter is fantastic. So no, we've got great weather today. I'm enjoying it. It's colder, but you can get away with it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm originally from Savannah, Georgia. Savannah is very humid. I don't know if you've ever been... I'm in love with Savannah. Savannah Forsyth Square right. is my favorite place on the entire planet. I kid you not. I I love Savannah. It is it is hands down my favorite city in the whole of the United States. And that that includes, you know, Hawaii and Alaska. I love Savannah. Hands down the friendliest people I've ever met in my life. And I'm Canadian. All right. Well, sorry. Yeah, well, I just was talking to Eric Alperman. We were talking about how nice Canadians are. <laughs> you guys are extremely nice. So that's a compliment. Yeah, no, we're known for Savannah uh, Southern hospitality. I actually grew up about four blocks from Forsyth. Oh. So I would walk every afternoon after school with my buddies. We'd, we'd either go play tackle football, no pads, or uh, play basketball. How close were you to Mercer House? Mercer House. So my dad was a lawyer. He's he was he actually represented Jim Williams. If you look in the back of the book, as we call it in Savannah, yeah. uh, my parents are fourth or fifth mentioned. Uh, I actually just started rereading it because I would love to talk to John Barrett. So he says, in addition, a number of people in Savannah who are not necessarily portrayed in these pages were helpful to me in various ways. Mary Ben Blunn, John Aubrey Brown, Peter and Gail Crawford, Mrs. Gerard Haynes, Walter and Connie Hartridge. So those are my that parents. That's fantastic. Uh, my, dad, my dad went to Harvard Law while John Barrett was the editor of the Harvard Lampoon. So he knew or was afraid that, <laughs> that he might be given a little bit of a satirical or hyperbolic impression of both my mom and himself. The book did great things for our city. When I was living in Savannah and I saw my dad held at gunpoint uh, when I was 10 on the front stoops. SCAD also, Savannah College of Art and Design has helped a great deal. But the book that just was The Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil that that helped tremendously with tourism. When did you travel to Savannah? 97 for that exact reason. That's why I brought it up. I figured by seeing your facial expressions and, and the fact that you brought up the Mercer House, I knew you read the book. 
Yeah, no, it was ironically, I've been in film and television basically all my life. I, I grew up starting in theater at six, started to get into film and television uh, around uh, 12. I love film and TV, and I have a big appreciation for all the stuff that Clint Eastwood does. So I, so yes. I, I love watching it. Unforgiven was one of the first shows that I ever got to be on as far as, as a movie goes. And so I was fascinated with it. So I, having seen it, it's a little bit outside of the genre that he would have normally done, right? Typically, I would, I would have, at that time, would have associated him with Westerns or like grittier cop dramas. And this was a little bit of a departure. And I, my favorite thing about the movie was actually not the, the film itself, but the, the soundtrack that went with it. Them doing all of those classic jazz standards from Old Black Magic to all the rest of them. And I just, I was in love with it. But because he cast his daughter in it, I had this. Yeah. This, yeah. I'm never, I'm not one who's been starstruck. Like I don't, I don't get kind of like that celebrity ooh ah because again, I've grown up and around stars basically my whole life. And so it was kind of, it's work and I get it and I understand yeah. them. But I had like Alison Eastwood to me was her character in, in the movie. And I was like, oh, and just after I had been in Savannah, I came back to Canada. I lived in Vancouver at the time and I did a show called The Spring that starred Kyle MacLachlan and Allison Eastwood. And when she came out of the trailer, I didn't see her as Allison. <laughs> I saw her and I was like, oh. You saw, you saw her yeah. as, uh, for midnight. Yeah. And so, and I was actually just completely and totally uh, gobsmacked at that point. I was, I, I it, was, it is the one and only time I've ever been starstruck. And remember, like Kyle MacLachlan was on that, and I'm a huge Frank Herbert fan, so I knew him as Paul Atreides from the Dune series. And I, I'm like, oh yeah, I know you're Paul. And my dad loved it. Like I'd, I'd grown up watching the Dune movie uh, over and over and over and over and over again. And so uh, I was, I, that was, you know, whatever. It was, yeah, th that's Paul Atreides, but look, look, it's Allison Eastwood. And I was just, yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely gobsmacked and starstruck for the one and only time in my life it made me it made me laugh but i love that movie everybody's gonna say well it, you know nepotism of course he cast his daughter but i honestly picture somebody else in it i can't i couldn't i couldn't name another actress and that's the other thing he needed somebody who could embody that role that people didn't already have a prior image of do you know what i mean like she needed to be mm -hmm. yeah. a local yeah, yeah. person of course and she, uh, and she did just such a, a wonderful job of 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 playing Mandy Nichols and and she's she's great in everything else like she's a really talented actress. Yes. So you said you were an Unforgiven. What, what exactly did oh, you yeah, do? Yeah, were you yeah. an extra just, or yeah, background uh, doing you know townsperson? Um, I actually was on that uh, because I knew the people who were doing the horse wrangling. Yeah, I got to do that. Legends of the Falls came that year or a year later as well. Um, and I did a little bit of extra work on that. Where was that filmed exactly? Uh, was it near Yellowstone or where exactly? Legends of the Fall? No, this is that's Calgary, uh, just outside the foothills of, of uh, between Calgary and Canmore, most of it. Okay, what about Unforgiven? Where was that? Filming locations for Unforgiven were um, all over. I think what we were doing was some uh, B unit stuff. So the, I think they filmed in both Canada and the States. What was your largest role? I know you did child acting and you were, did you have many speaking parts? Um, oh yeah. No, if you search my IMDB page, I've had a lot of roles and my favorite, I don't know that it's my largest, the longest I was on set. I had a recurring role on an MTV series called Together which was kind of a mockumentary of a boy band. And the, the okay. main, one of the main five, like there's five guys in it all together. Um, Evan Farmer, who went on to do a whole bunch of like house renovation. He hosted a whole bunch of house renovation shows. Um, Chris Farley's brother was, uh, Kevin Farley was one of them. 
like I think seven of the 10 episodes or something like that in the can, or maybe there was 12 episodes. I can't remember how many episodes that we did all together. But my favorite one was a, a show called Door to Door with William H. Macy and Helen Mirren. They were incredibly gracious with their time with me. I was only on set, literally on set, well, on set for probably eight hours, filming day of all of maybe six hours, but it was the middle of the night. And it was the first time I ever felt like a movie star. I was barely on there, barely for a day, but I got a star trailer. I got the big poofy jacket. I got the, I got my name on the back of my chair. Bill actually came in in between setups and hung out in my trailer with me, introduced himself to me. I got to have my friends on, like my friends and my girlfriend got to come by and I had like the huge, huge trailer. Like it was just massive. And that's the thing, like of all the stuff that Bill's done, it's like the one nobody knows about because he's done so many iconic roles and just great roles. It was one of those just amazing times for me to just be on set. At the degree and the involvement that you were in, in the industry, what's your take on the film industry as a whole? It's a weird place. Yeah. It is. I mean, it's a universe unto itself. I love, love, love watching the, what is it? Four or five Golden Globes that Ricky Gervais hosted. Yeah. Because, you know, there was, he, he pulled the curtain back, right? Like, celebrity is such a weird thing i'm i'm so thankful that i never reached the level of celebrity that that i was a working actor right you know like i i show up i maybe had a role with lines three times a year four times a year the rest of the time i was doing extra work or stand-in work or stunts or special skills or something like some other category of performance which is what 99.9% of people who are working uh, actors yeah. do. And I was lucky because I it was the thing that I did. I didn't do any other job. I was able to do it long enough, well enough. And because I'd been in the union for forever, unionized enough that I was making a decent wage at it. And, and all I had to do was perform. But I've, I've been away from it for almost 15 years. And I've recently got back in my agent had had reached out to me and asked if I wanted to start auditioning. And I've done a few shows in the last year or two, three. I'm always amazed at how an industry that's trying to portray reality, how unrealistic it is. (laughs) Yeah. Nothing about it is real. In fact, it's completely and totally surreal. And the talent in front of the camera is only a fraction of the talent that's involved, particularly in film and television, right? Yeah. There's so many people behind the scenes that make the few people that you see on camera be on camera. Right. And those are the people who I'm always impressed with. You know, the grips, the electrics, the um, ADs, the uh, production assistants. I mean, if you stay after a film, whether you're watching it at home or at the movie theater, you look at the credits. I mean, there's thousands people involved it's crazy and and Uh, the and the and the starring list is only this big right correct these are the actors and then they get a single bar and then everybody else is like three or four columns and it goes on for minutes afterwards Yeah. yeah there's so many people involved in film so long that they need to give little mini movies in between every couple of minutes to keep you watching so tell me you were you how you transitioned transitioned into that so you've you've written a book right i have yeah and tell me about the premise of that uh so it the book actually came about when you're in the industry like film and television and stage like i said i started at six years old so at 25 i'd been in the industry for 20 years and like anybody you you retire after 20 years i'd gotten really complacent with it it had stopped I used to love doing it because it was fun. You know, it was a place to play. It was a place to enjoy. And for the first couple of years I was in Vancouver, it was still fun. Sure. But slowly it became a job. And it stopped being fun. And it became the movie business. And I could really see the business side of it. And 
it just it just wasn't fun and i didn't want to do it anymore so i stopped i re- i retired from acting stepped away from it and uh, went back to school got an engineering discipline started my own um business that was that specialized in aerial photography uh, more specifically um doing ortho photos which is a fancy way of saying we made maps out of the aerial photography so anybody who's been on google maps or google earth when you click on the satellite view i made those pictures um and it was a fun really fun business to be in it kind of blended a lot of talents that i have into one area but i'm i was not a good businessman at that time (laughs) especially because at that point i was i just turned 30 when i started the business i was i was partnered with an incredible incredible businesswoman and, and a great mentor of mine unfortunately she passed away um two years into the venture and and the business just it collapsed and i yeah it, it i it didn't go the way that i had planned and hoped it was going to be my forever home and it, it it didn't last that way but um when you're in that line of business your primary client is usually government agencies and if you're working for the government the government always wants you to have a health and safety program in place. Of course. Yes. And I lost the the draw, <laughs> the coin flip between me and my business partner. And so I had to get all the safety training and then develop our safety program. And when the business collapsed, there's no more business, but I still had all the safety training. And a friend of mine who is a significantly better business mind than I am, uh, reached out to me and said, uh, you know, I've got this contract working in oil and gas up north. And I I started doing the safety stuff. And most of that safety is just communication, right? Doing training people through orientations or the various classes that they need to have, speaking in safety meetings and all this stuff. And having been in film and television and having done a few stunts, there was an occasion where I was yelling at some guys because there was a, a, the project that we were working on was almost a billion dollar build. Right. And, and that's, that was what I was trying to do. I was trying to make sure that everybody was doing their thing and the executives were doing a, their tour. And I saw a couple of guys who were working at height that were not doing it safely. There was no guardrail. They were leaning off of a ladder. They shouldn't have been using a ladder. So I was yelling at them. I'm like, listen, you know, and they and they were beaking at me because I'm not an electrician. And right. that's what these guys were. That was the trade that they were. And they're like, you don't even know. Cause you're not even an electrician. And I was so irritated by that. It just bugged me that I went on this rant. I'm like, no, you're right. I'm not an electrician, but I'll tell you what I used to do before I did this. I used to jump out a window six stories in the air and jumping out of a six story window was safer than what you're doing right now. They looked at me and they were like, oh, and then I looked behind me and all of the executives on their tour had come around the corner and had heard me yelling at these guys. So they, one of them ended up pulling me aside and he's like, was that true? I said, what is what true? He's like, did you used to do stunt work? I was like, yes, I, very briefly. And, you know, and I tried to pass it off. He's like, do you really think that doing stunts was safer than working here? I'm like, oh, yeah, hands down. He's like, <laughs> and so he got into this conversation with me. He's like, would you, he says, you seem really comfortable speaking. And so he ended up asking me to do a keynote presentation at one of their um, safety stand downs or annual uh, AGMs. And and from there, a couple other people saw that I do it. And next thing I knew, I had an agent and I was public speaking. And my safety kind of switched from being a safety trainer to training people how to be better public speakers so that they could communicate their information more effectively so that their workforce would understand what they were trying to communicate so that they would be safer. And then that transformed into just training people to public speak because as soon as it, when it had the safety bit on it, we had a lot of supervisors and managers come through to get the safety training so that they were better. But then all of a sudden they were doing so much better that the CEOs were like, Hey, Hey, what did you guys do? And they're like, Oh, we took this training with this Tyler Foley guy. And it was really fantastic. And then next thing I knew I was working with CEOs and doing a lot of private coaching. And then they would always ask, well, do you have a book? Do you have a book? I'm like, no, I don't have a book. And they're like, well, you should have a book. And when somebody who makes seven figures a year tells you you should do something, do that thing, (laughs) right? 
So I had at least three of the executives that I was coaching tell me that I needed to write a book. So I took all of the training that I had been doing, transcribed it because I'm lazy and I didn't want to write and I'd already had all this material. So I transcribed all of my training and put it into the book. And next thing I knew, I had a published book called The Power to Speak Naked, a number one best-selling book because a lot of the guys that I was coaching helped me with the marketing and and how and and knew the bit again the business side of it. I'm like on the creative side. I just want to make these yes. things and do these things. Yes. These guys knew the business, and so they were able to uh, show me how to really push it and promote it. And I'm I'm just humbled that I a I get to say that I'm a published author. B that I get to say that I'm a best selling author. Like that is that's cool when you get to say that. Um, and again, like my acting. Even though I've done the really cool thing, people still don't know who I am. So I still have the joy of anonymity. And that is, that makes me happy too. Well, so tell me the premise of your book. Tell me the techniques of public speaking. What, what are the main points that you're driving points in the book? Well, so the funny thing is, is the driving things in the book should have been the driving things in my training, but we ended up leaving out some of some of the, my main messaging points didn't actually make it into the book, which to this day, I'm still surprised by. And we're actually writing a revised edition of it uh, that'll come out next year. Um, what typically we're talking about in the book is how the majority of people, when they why they think they're afraid of public speaking is not actually why they're afraid of public speaking. So most people, that right down to the fact that people claim to be afraid of public speaking. They're not. No, the majority of people polled will claim to have this fear of public speaking. And, and I think they've got studies that say it's like 77%. The reality is less than 1% of people are actually afraid of public speaking. Because if we were afraid of public speaking, commerce would shut down as we know it. You'd never be able to go to a bank and talk to a teller. You, If, if anybody has ever ordered food in a restaurant, they're not afraid of public speaking. And you know, this, I can't, I'm afraid to speak in public. Well, if you ordered your food, you were speaking in public. Oh yeah, yeah, but that's different. Uh, you know, I, I'm afraid of speaking to strangers. Well, if you didn't know your wait staff before you came in, then you spoke to a stranger. I'm afraid to ask for what I want. Well, did you not want the food that you ordered, right? So all of those things are instantly destroyed if you've ever been to a restaurant and gotten the food that you wanted delivered to your table. The reality is, and when people push back, they're like, yeah, yeah, but nobody's listening to me. I'm like, ah, there are a few people that are listening to you, whoever's at the table and your wait staff, but you aren't worried about their opinion of you. The reality is when we say that we're afraid of public speaking, what we're actually afraid of is public judgment. And so what a lot of what I do in the book is helping people get over that fear of public judgment. So we really focus on the fact that the audience is on your side. People don't show up to hear people speak wanting them to fail, right? Nobody is, has tuned in to this episode, right? Like they're not listening, hoping that Tom has a horrible guest on, right? They just don't do that. They probably listen to your episode with Eric and we're like, hey, this Eric Alper guy sounds interesting and he's Canadian. I, I see that he has another Canadian coming up. This Tyler yeah. guy might be interesting too. <laughs> right? Like they, they're going to tune in because they want the information. At worst, the absolute worst case scenario, your audience is passively indifferent to your message. So this is like if um, if there's a boardroom meeting and every, it's mandatory, right? The boss has said, you have to be at this meeting. And then your boss said, and you have to present, <laughs> right? Yeah. And everybody else has to be there. They're not sitting there going, Oh, I, I hope this person fails miserably. I hope this is a complete waste of my time and we get no value out of that. That's not what they're thinking. Everybody sits down hoping it'll be good because they don't want their time wasted. So they want you to succeed. And if you were asked to be there, you were the expert. If you have the platform, you are the authority or they would have asked somebody else. So this worry about judgment is is backwards because we don't actually do that. We are very self-centered creatures us human beings are and we are typically concerned with what is going to be good for us so this fear of public judgment doesn't need to exist and the book spends a, most of the chapters in some way or form helping you get over that fear of public judgment 
and really embracing your own message, your own story, your own style, and helping you prepare properly too. That's the other thing. Most people prepare incorrectly. They spend hours and hours and hours trying to memorize pages and pages of script word for word. It's the worst, worst kind of presentations. The best presentations are exactly what you and I are doing right now. Free flowing, yes. based off of cues from your audience. Correct. They will direct what the information needs to be. You just need to present that information effectively. And the best way to do that is to not memorize stuff. Trust your authority and answer it from uh, from your heart and you will you will succeed. And that's where the majority of the book spends its time is showing people how to do that and how to do it really effectively. How did you come up with a title? Shock value. <laughs> I love the title of the book. It actually came. Um, I, I knew that I had wanted to write the book and the book had actually, um, again, had been written without being written because it was transcribed from all of my training. And when we were trying to come up with a title, we, we'd thrown out a whole bunch of, of titles up onto a board and I hated every one of them. They just didn't speak to me. You know, I think one of them was like, wow, your audience. And one of them was like, uh, you know, uh, public speaking like a pro or something like that. I don't know. I like, they were just, they were, they were, just, yeah. they were awful, absolutely yeah. awful. And so the book is an advice book. So, I had my team together and we were sitting around. There's about five of us just out. I was at, I was speaking at a conference and um, the back of the house guys were there. Um, the main host who had brought me to this conference was there. And um, my ghostwriter was there. And we, we were all kind of just milling around after, after the talk, I was like a Saturday evening and the hall was empty and I was just frustrated because we had a publishing deadline coming up. So I needed the title for the book so that we could get the, the graphic, like the, the cover art done. And it was like literally the thing that I was hung up on. My publisher was so, <laughs> so frustrated with me. And uh, so I, I, ba I think, I think I needed to have the answer to my publisher on the Monday. And I was just, I, at that point I was in panic mode and I didn't want to have to take one of the titles that I had. And so we were brainstorming together and I, I'd asked the group, I said, it's a, it's a book on advice. So let's, you know, maybe we can grab them with one, with some advice, just right on the cover. So what's some of the advice that you'd gotten as a speaker? And I'll never forget my ghostwriter was like, well, I was always told that when you're public speaking, you should picture your audience naked. And I, and I, I just, I went at full rage. I was like, that is the worst advice anybody can ever give somebody who wants to public speak. Yeah, it is yeah. such nonsense that it doesn't work. And I said, and for so many reasons, and I went on, on this tirade about how masochistic it is, how it's a waste of brain power, how your audience should come first. And if you're putting your audience first, why would you picture them? And why, how are you gaining comfort from somebody other's discomfort? And how does that give you power? How does that make it like it, for all those reasons, it, it, it's awful. And at the end of the said tirade, I went, I would rather give somebody the power to speak naked than to have them picture their audience naked. And as soon as I said it, Everybody went, oh, that's the title. And I went, what? And they're like, the power to speak naked. And I went, ooh, I like that. But before I went it, I, I wanted it. I was like, okay, but why? Why is that the title? And so we started exploring what that actually meant. So on the surface, I really do want to give people the power to speak naked. Like, I want you to be so confident in your messaging that you could walk up in the emperor's new clothes Sure. You wouldn't care because you knew your material. Subtext to that, I want your material to be so good and your delivery to be so good that people aren't even paying attention to what you've got on. So you could go out naked and nobody would even notice because they'd be captivated by your words. And then another sub-layer within that is I want people to be able to give a naked presentation. And by that, I don't mean with their clothes off. I mean, without all the fluff, right? You don't need a PowerPoint, please, for the love of 
all things holy don't have a PowerPoint. If you do need a visual presentation, like there's nothing wrong with having a graphic put up on a screen. Like if you need a visual aid, if you have maybe uh, a quote that you want to put up or an image that you want to put up because an image a picture speaks a thousand words so save yourself a thousand words the average person speaks 60 words a minute so you can save 10 like that's a lot of minutes if you if you put up an image of a thousand words i can't do math on the fly unfortunately so no <laughs> right nobody can but it's it's definitely 600 words would be 10 minutes so we we know that we're approaching 16 minutes of time that you can save with a graphic you don't need it though like you should be able to paint a picture with your words uh you should be able to have what we're having right now and it's just a conversation with your audience and so i want people to be able to have a naked presentation and then the very the root level of it is i want people to be able to speak the raw naked truth so what didn't make it into the book and it's a shame because it's, it's one of my core messagings. It's one of my three pillars that I that I preach in every one of my training seminars. The thing you're afraid to say is likely the thing that your audience needs to hear. And part of that is having the courage to speak the raw naked truth, to be vulnerable, to expose yourself to an audience so that they can understand your point of view. They say, Never to judge a person until you've walked a mile in their shoes. Well, I can't walk a mile in your shoes, Tom, even though we've both been in Savannah. Right. You know, I can I can picture where you've walked, but I can especially picture it if you tell me, right? You talk about being a kid and walking back to your house and going through Forsyth Square and park, uh, yes. play, yeah. or the park and uh, you know, playing tackle with no pads, right? Goofing off with boys. Like I can picture that. I can go to that. I know when you're talking about Savannah, like if you were to take me on a journey through the streets or talk to me about your favorite restaurant, I could literally walk there. You could tell that picture and I can go there. I can walk that mile metaphorically in your shoes uh, by you just explaining it to me. And that to me is the true power to speak naked, to be able to take transport somebody on a journey by exposing that little bit about yourself. And I think when I do say it, a lot of people instantly think that I'm asking them to talk about their deepest, darkest secret. I'm not asking you to bury your soul. What I'm asking is for you to get really gritty and honest with your audience. When you're speaking to them, speak plainly, speak truthfully, don't gloss it over. Tell a compelling story, but be honest with it. Don't, don't edit it for our sake because that doesn't serve anybody. I think the best part and what I get the most fulfillment out of is each episode, I share a little bit about myself, which correlates and corresponds in a conversational type technique with my guest. And vulnerability is powerful. When you're vulnerable, you're showing a little piece of yourself and you can sound insincere if you're not passionate about the topic. And so for me to speak with you, like public speaking, I love it, but I also, if anybody who's been listening to my past episodes, I've been battling from anxiety, depression, but here's the thing. I get this huge adrenaline rush when I'm talking and up until the very moment I press play, I've done stand up, put mics and stuff, and that's nerve wracking. But when you get a laugh and you've got the cadence and you can keep moving forward, there is nothing. It's like a drug to me. Okay. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I, I love talking to strangers. So I love to travel. I've traveled in, throughout Canada and just learning people's stories, their own stories, because we all have different great stories. I still struggle with it, with anxiety every time I have to speak. But at the same time, I plow through it and I love doing it. So how do you approach it every time? For instance, I press record, we're talking, you just roll with it or what? give me some insight on perspective on that. Well, no, absolutely roll with it. So when I, again, right, people are preparing the wrong way. They spend all this time memorizing stuff. What I spend my time on is centering myself, knowing knowing who I am, knowing my core. So that right. when you ask me a question, there is, it's, it's obvious. Like I, I would hope that it's obvious that I am speaking from a place of truth, from a place of honesty, like yes. this is who I am is what you get. 
right? Right. Like, I want to make sure that I have a zero BS tolerance because most people have uh, <laughs> an incredible BS meter, right? Like as human beings, we have this sixth sense. We know when somebody's full of it. And I just, I want to make sure every time that I am presenting to the best of my ability. And as you had said, there is no bigger thrill. There's no bigger rush than, than hearing the applause or hearing the, um, the laughter. Oh, when you can make people laugh. Oh, that is just, that is so joyful. And it's kudos to you, by the way, for doing stand up. So if you can do stand up, you can do anything. Stand up is, I will forever and hold this true and dear to me. I believe it to be the hardest performance art out of all of them. Actors, psh, whatever. I agree with you. Acting is, um, it's a totally different art form. One thing is, you learn a shit ton, a lot from bombing. Yeah. I haven't. Yes, and what, what people don't understand is how much work it takes for these famous comedians to put together a special on Netflix or HBO or Showtime. That is several, maybe hundreds of times of crafting the same joke, going into these clubs while they're touring and perfecting them. Yeah. And so they think, oh, wow. No, it is a grueling process. Comedy is an art form in itself. Musicians, too. It takes a lot of bravery to share your art form out there in the world. Well, but here's here's the difference between any of the other ones, musicians included. And I know because I, I've played in a few bands. I'm a drummer and I, I can I can sing. I wouldn't call myself a singer, but I can sing. So I'll do like backup. I'll do harmony vocals, right? Um, when you are in a band, people may have heard your music, uh, but they, you know, if you put out a new song, they don't, they never know they don't know what it was supposed to sound like. They don't know what it was supposed to do. And musicians are encouraged to improvise, right? So you, if you ever go to a live concert, you know that what you heard on the recording that was played on the radio or uh, streamed, or if, you, if you're old enough to still have CDs on the CD, right? Yes. They sound different live because they're going to put on a flare. They're going to change some of where the vocals are. It'll be mostly the same, but you know, they'll improvise in different places. Guitar solos are always going to be different. Drum solos are always going to be different. Uh, vocal lines will change every once in a while. And people are okay with that because it's still the same thing. They come in and they, and if you play a new one, they've never heard it before. So they don't, they don't know what to expect. So it doesn't matter. Same with acting on stage. They don't know, even if it's a play that they've seen, everybody's expected to come and bring something different to it comedy on the other hand right i can as an actor if i'm playing on a stage even if it's a comedic show there are going to be moments of levity and there's also going to be moments of gravity where it gets a little bit more serious and you have a little bit more tone and you can play with those emotions you can go through the whole emotion wheel right and one of my favorite things to do in my training sessions is take people through the emotion wheel and they can see you know what are our opposing emotions what are shared emotions um, how do those relate? And I, as a performer, whether that's in music or on stage acting, I can say, you know, there is that your polar opposite of grief is ecstasy and joy. The opposite is sadness. And you can move around the wheel from vigilance to ecstasy, to admiration, to terror, to amazement, to grief. You can move from anger to anticipation, switch over to disgust. Like there's so many emotions that you can experience and go through. As right. a comedian, you're expected to give your audience one, one. <laughs> Make me laugh, monkey boy. That's Dance, right. Right. And that's it. We go with the expectation that the words that are coming out of your mouth are going to make me laugh at some point. And the harder I laugh, the better you are. If it's just a light chuckle, <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Good observation. You're not good, right? You need to get the uproarious laughter. And that is why that performance art, in my opinion, is the hardest. Because there is a prejudgment and a pre-expectation. Remember me saying, you know, most people don't have to worry about their audience judgment of them. Comedians don't have to worry about the judgment initially. The audience is on your side, but the audience is only on your side as long as you can what? Make them laugh. And that right. is why, in my opinion, being a, a stand-up comedian is the 
hardest performance art. And I have nothing but respect for anyone who does it. And doubly so when you're bombing, because I know that that's how you're perfecting your craft. You have to bomb. You have to bomb. I bomb as a speaker and whatever. People may not have even noticed it. And even if they did notice it, I, it, do, it, it doesn't affect them the same way as a comedian who just tanks and yeah. just doesn't connect. So you say you speak four times a day on podcasts? Yeah, give or take. That, okay. And what are the topics? I mean, you're with me, but for, give me some other examples. Uh, sure. Uh, let, let's, let's go through my a couple of the pod match ones that I've done because that's that's usually the easier thing for me to do is to actually go and look. I was on a show called Glass Half Full and it was just a, it was you know one of those overcoming adversity type ones. So we were mm-hmm. you know because I've had some adversity in my life. My father passed away at 6. I had a medical incident at 17 that left the left side of my body paralyzed for almost a year. What happened when you were 17? How did you what what happened exactly? <laughs> that's a good question. Medical mystery currently. Um we don't know but what I do know is that I went to bed New Year's Eve, well, actually early, early, early morning, New Year's Day, 1997, woke up just before noon that day, and my face didn't work. And then when I tried to get out of bed, there I couldn't feel the left side of my body. And whether it was a, a mini stroke or some form of Bell's palsy or just a, a regular palsy, recently I was a goaltend because I'm Canadian, right? So ice hockey, got to do it. And I've been goaltending since I was like <laughs> nice. 10 years old. I just love it. It's my favorite thing to do. It's how I get my exercise. Uh, but I pulled my groin at uh, um, early December. And so I've been going to different therapists. And the one that I w- uh, was at just before Christmas, I uh, can't remember what she said. Some kind of full body seizure, some or half body seizure or something. She said she'd seen it. And same thing, the people couldn't find in the scans. There's no sign of stroke. But if it was a Bell's palsy, it would have only affected the face, not the body. Uh, so they've just gone through. Uh, she was She was saying that she had this other theory. Could be true. I don't know. We don't know. What I do know is that I woke up, my face didn't work. And it took almost a year for me to be able to get this back, which when you're an actor, and I was going to a fine arts high school, I was one of the main build roles in the final, like we, we did this main stage presentation every year. And when you were in the fine arts high school, part of the expectation of your graduation was that you had to complete drama 15, 25, 35, 35 being the final performance. And I didn't get to, I had to withdraw from it. It happened over Christmas too. So like, that's just devastating when, cause I, my friends were my family at that point. And so I was away, you know, I couldn't see my friends. I couldn't drive because I drove a 1984 Honda Accord. That was a five-speed standard. And when sure. you're doesn't work, uh, you can't clutch. Of course. It, it was really, it was quite devastating at the time, especially at 17 because- 17, you know, I mean, that would be horrific. And you have no concept of how long life is. Correct. Like you just don't know. So I was on, I was on that show, Glass Half Full, and we were talking about all of that and how I could- maintain optimism through it and what are some of the life lessons and i was on a, a really fun one called Nonfiction brand with a really cool host dp and he's a branding expert and he you know he had me on and we were we were just riffing riffing on you know the importance of public speaking and anybody who wants to get into branding what they can do you know you got to be out there as much as you can talking about your experiences because you never know who needs to hear it you never know what story is going to land or have impact you never know what people are going to gravitate to and when you are guarded with that information you can't really impact change and so for me it's it's if i'm going to say people need to get out there and i'm going to train them to get out there well you know what you need to get out there and i need to train you to get out there so uh i have to do what i'm telling my clients to do and show that the proof is in the pudding and that's how i've always lived my life so when this happened to you when you were 17 how how did it finally come back uh oh tons of therapy tons of therapy a couple of times a week various different practitioners for 10 to 11 months big shout out to dr bob and joanne corbett who really spearheaded my therapy, my recovery helped me with my mental game too. Like a lot of 
a lot of that came from having some hope that things would get better. Bob and Joe were just incredible human beings. I'm still friends with them. I I actually was at uh, their son's wedding. Um, I was in the bridal party because Jay and I are, are really good friends because of it. The whole Corbett family are phenomenal human beings. You want to talk about high achievers. <laughs> That's, that is a family to model yourself after. I'm just grateful and blessed to be in a part of their life and, and basically a secondary son. When my father passed away, uh, the community really rallied around my mom. Part of that community was Bob and Joe taking me under their wings and really giving me some guidance and giving me great tutelage, great mentorship. And so when, when the medical incident happened, they were, they were invested in me and they had a, a real personal bent to see that I get better and, and better all the way around. Like it's, it's one thing to physically come back. It's another thing to mentally come back. And they did a, a great job of, of providing a light at the end of the tunnel when it was pretty dark for a while. And I, I'm always grateful to them. It's, yeah, I was going to actually ask you about that because since you brought it up, you lost your father, you were six, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Motorcycle accident? Is that- uh, no, motor vehicle Motor vehicle. Uh, so, I'm sorry. Yeah, so a uh, single vehicle, motor vehicle incident where my hometown, where I grew up, uh, used to be one of the large stationing airfields for the second world war for the Pacific front it was just an ideal airstrip. Problem is war is over. Most of that infrastructure goes away, but those munitions bunkers are four foot thick concrete and scattered. And when my dad uh, fell asleep at the wheel, he uh, managed to, in basically what is wide open farmer's fields, hit this one buried structure just outside of the ditch. And uh, 1982 Chrysler K car, the four foot thick concrete munitions bunker, um, munitions bunker one handily. And uh, unfortunately, he uh, he died. I'm so sorry. Uh, I've lost both my parents. And I talk about this uh, in an earlier episode with a therapist, Dr. Lisa Vallejos out of Denver. I said, I lost my father seven years ago to cancer. He was my best friend. And my mom, just I was her primary caregiver. As soon as we found out, I've been living in Savannah, just packed up my car. And uh, my sister's helped out, of course, too. But I never know the perspective on the other end. I mean, most of my friends have lost their, have maybe they still have both their parents. But when I'm grieving the loss of my mom or thinking about both my parents, Christmas for me was difficult. But then I I wanted to bring this up and hope I'm not offending you, but the perspective on the other end of somebody as a child losing a parent, what that may be like. It sounds like you had a strong community help you. Yeah. Well, and that's exactly it. It was community. And to be honest, I was too young to know anything like that's basically been my life. Right. I feel worse for my sister because she didn't ever really get to know my father because she would have been two and a half when he passed away. And he passed away just after Christmas, too. We had a wonderful Christmas the Christmas before he passed away. We were out at my uncle's. We had a big family Christmas on the West Coast. It was a good time. It was it was really joyful. And then the next couple of Christmases, because it was probably harder for my mom than it was for us, my uncle took us down to Whitefish two years in a row. We'd get to hang out in Montana and go skiing. And I remember Christmas not being horrible. Right. And and then just, a- and after that, like it just, it becomes less and less and less and less. I didn't actually openly grieve my father's passing until I was probably about 12 years old. It didn't really occur to me. Dad isn't coming home. Right. It, it was life. It was, it was how life was. And I, I was, I was lucky that instead of having one father, I probably had 15 father figures, really good ones that I'm still in contact with every day. Yeah. So, that's great. What's the name of the town you're from originally? High River, Alberta. And so Dr. V, who I just mentioned, we talk about the importance of community and it sounds like that you had a very strong foundation and, and loving people to rally around you and, and be there for you and your mother and your sister. Yeah. And it takes a village and I had an entire town. So that's awesome. I, 
I'm, I'm grateful every day for all the blessings. And it's one of the things that I talk about too. Like, I don't think my father's passing was a good thing. I don't look on the bright side of that. It drives me insane when people say that, Oh, where's, where's your silver lining? I'm like, you know what? Screw the silver lining. I don't care about the silver lining, but I do think there was a lot of grace in it, that there was some divinity behind that, that I wouldn't be who I am today if it weren't for those events. And there were definitely lessons that needed to be learned into it. And I'm, I'm still learning them 36 years later. I'm learning every day. And I, I wouldn't change it for the world. We all have different experiences and loss, no matter how old you are, it's difficult. I saw my mom fall apart at the age of 63 when she lost her, her mom and I didn't get it. And now I just turned 42 and now I get it. I'm so sorry about your dad, and but it's made you who, who you are, clearly. True story. It's, it's, it's molded you. And uh, thank you for sharing that. I was just going to say, thanks for having me on the show. Like I loved being able to have this, this conversation with you. It's been a, an absolute joy and a pleasure, Tom, yeah. just being able to be here. The one thing I wanted to just tell me and the audience, uh, what else do you have coming up? Anything exciting? I'm going to get to speak on stage in Phoenix in May, and we'll be coming back to Phoenix to do Power to Speak Naked event. And I maybe, maybe, I, again, I have to find out uh, from the promoter here now uh, doing an event in Vegas in April. So I'm actually really looking forward to that. So I, I should be putting on my two and a half day seminar in Vegas. And if anybody wants that information, they can go to my website, which is seantylerfoley.com. And Sean is spelled the proper Irish way, S-E-A-N-T-Y-L-E-R-F-O-L-E-Y.com. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. Me too, Tom. What a series of fun stories about Tyler's adventures from childhood acting until he discovered his current passion of writing and motivational speaking. I hope that I extended the Southern hospitality to Tyler that he has experienced from my hometown in Savannah, Georgia. It's clear that Tyler is very comfortable telling stories, engaging with his audience, and making his mark as a performer. I think it's important to hear his challenges and anxiety as a deadline loomed to choose a title for his book. Sometimes, a heated brainstorming sessions can result in a powerful outcome. His story illustrates the need for authenticity, creativity, and facing your fears and telling a compelling story. Hopefully, as you, the listeners, heard Tyler's stories that it invoked in you a motivation to be vulnerable and let your own voice be heard. I may not actually speak naked, but I do understand and appreciate the premise of his message and encourage everyone to speak from a place of honesty and truth. There is always something to learn in each episode, and I want to thank the listeners for sharing their time for Tyler, and of course me, again, on this episode of Neurons to Nirvana. 